Adventures in Teaching. Stories of creativity, relationships, excitement, and suspense from the university and K-12 classroom. Brought to you by KELT, the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at Thompson Rivers University. Welcome to Adventures in Teaching. This episode features two humanities teachers, Dr. Brett Fairbairn, who is the President and Vice-Chancellor of Thompson Rivers University, and Allison Sido, who is the Superintendent and Chief Executive Officer of School District Number 73, Kamloops Thompson. Both Brett and Allison have taught overseas in various forms, and they're going to be talking about those experiences, as well as other experiences they have engaging learners in Adventures on the Road to Learning. So can maybe we can start with um, just a, a discussion about where you started teaching, where your where your first teaching jobs were, and what kind of things you've taught over the years. Well, I began uh, teaching in Houston, British Columbia, and uh, for a city girl, that was quite uh, an adventure. Uh, my husband and I are both teachers, uh, and we actually had a young uh, son at the time. And we traveled from Vancouver uh, up to Houston, and we settled in, into the community. And I began by teaching uh, what was known at the time as I-5. And I don't know if you recall, but during the Sullivan Commission, uh, there were some innovations and some uh, changes in the, the teaching profession and the way we configured schools. And so that was essentially grade 8. Um, and it was, it was an exciting time to be an educator. I'd forgotten all about that. That was year five of the intermediate program. That's correct. I forgot. That, yeah, that. yeah, yeah. Yeah. What else have you taught over the years? I've taught uh, essentially everything from K to twelve. Uh, I was essentially a middle school teacher, so grade six, seven, eight were the years that uh, I spent the majority of my teaching. I taught mostly English and socials, but I also taught math and science. Mm. Okay. What about you, Brett? Um, well, I guess my first teaching job um, happened when I was uh, was still a student, um, um, but I, you know, I got a little paycheck for it, so I think it uh, it would count. Um, but I was um, um, doing um, research in German history. And my college I was at in England hired me to tutor some other students in German language. It was a really interesting experience, so I had no uh, preparation for it. I also had no curriculum and no syllabus. The The goal was simply there were some prescribed texts, and the, the people I was tutoring uh, needed to learn German well enough to, uh, to do an exam on those texts. What was interesting about that experience for me is it was the first time I kind of grappled with the difference between between um, what what an exam is for and what's intellectually interesting for for people, um, so I started engaging the students about you know what what does this author mean? What are they trying to say? What do you think about this argument? Um, and they thought they were just there to memorize nouns and verbs. So it was a really interesting uh, interesting discussion and an opportunity to go beyond what uh, what the exam was for. 
Now, that's interesting. Now, because you, you, you were Rhodes Scholar, so you were at Oxford. Now, have you noticed a difference in teaching and learning in that uh, area as opposed to North America? Like, they, they'll, you, you, you read a subject mm-hmm. you know, when, you're, when you're at sort of Oxbridge. Oh, it, well, it, so, so the historic um, institutions, um, so Oxford and Cambridge, are, are unique and not always in a good way. So there's not, you don't want to, to emulate all these, uh, all these practices. So there's wonderful things and there's absurd things about, uh, about how teaching is organized there. On the absurd side, I read a, a, a paper where in uh, 12 weeks in doing 12 essays, I was to become... Um, uh, masterful in the history of England from 410 AD to 1964. Um, so yeah, I didn't feel very good about that as a student, but uh, but you know you do what you can. Uh, but the wonderful thing about uh, the Oxbridge system is the tutorials, um, and um, yeah, so the lectures are optional. You can go to lectures. You supplement your education that way. But the heart of it is meetings with uh, with faculty members, uh, with one student on one faculty member or two students or at most three students and to do that every week and you write a paper for every class. Um, So uh, writing a paper, a lengthy paper that you have to defend in front of a faculty member out loud um, every week and having that attention. And the flip side of it is that I really appreciate how many hours a week um, the faculty members there put into teaching. I know it's a different system but their, their contact hours are beyond what we do in our universities. You have to respect that uh, that kind of commitment. You know that's that's interesting. Um, I also had an opportunity to teach in India, and uh, it was an international school, and it it was the British system as well as the um, mm-hmm. the American system. And my experience was that there was a lot more focus on content and subject areas. Uh, whereas in British Columbia, the focus was more on the student, uh, recognizing where the student was at, and then moving them through uh, a learning progression that helped them to be the best that they could be. And when I first went to India and began teaching there, um, I did struggle uh, because it, the system was so very, very different. Um, but there's a real benefit to having worked or learned, taught, and uh, um, as well as learned in different systems because you you start to understand that actually teaching and learning is, is based on a schema. And once you start to deconstruct that schema, um, I think you become more effective in your profession. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And, and people don't realize the strengths of um, North American, but especially Canadian education. I remember talking to um, um, the, the professors um, in, uh, in Europe about our education versus theirs. And one of the practical issues is that I came over with a three-year degree from a Canadian university, and they gave me um, advanced standing, so a year's credit towards um, their honors program. And, and I, I sort of remember talking to them about that and, you know, comparing myself to the other students. And one of my tutors there just said, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, British students who come into British universities will know more facts mm. than Canadian mm-hmm. students will. Uh, but in his experience, North American students, Canadian students, um, um, know how to learn. They know how to work with ideas. They know how to make connections between different classes. Um, so 
catch up quickly and, uh, and in fact, are, are better in some ways than, uh, than their students that have such deep preparation in their system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that my impression of the new curriculum in BC is that it even more accentuates the intellectual and social development of, uh, of students. It's a huge strength of the Canadian system generally. Yes, I would agree. I think we've uh, formalized um, some of those um, um, practices that that encourage students to think uh, more critically or creatively. Um, and in the new curriculum, we call them competencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those competencies have really, they've always been there. We've always taught them, but they've, um, they, they, they are now much more prevalent. It's almost as if we've surfaced them and, and, and we're privileging them more. And so I think our teaching is much more intentional or we're moving towards much more intentional teaching around critical thinking and creativity. And as I understand it, and you would know more about this than I, Brett, but that the research really does point to the fact that uh, the 21st century student, uh, people in our society, need competencies more than they need content. The content will change, right? So the ability to keep learning, the ability to... Um, um, uh, listen to other people, to understand their points of view, to reflect on that. All of those skills are more important than ever. Um, You've reminded me in talking about your teaching experience abroad, too, and I I hadn't remembered this in in thinking ahead to this uh, this podcast. One of the most interesting experiences I had was when a colleague and I were invited to teach a group of 50 uh, master's students in China for a week. Um, and the, so these were economic students. Um, um, they all had um, uh, really good English. We were pleased with that part of it. But, uh, but it, he's, he was a good friend of mine. He was the economist. I'm a historian. And we had to decide what are we going to do with these students. And we, we knew just a little bit about the Chinese educational system, um, enough that we could set out to do something shocking for these, these students. Um, so we turned up in their class, and we basically refused to lecture. We declined to provide any content. We uh, required the students to do readings. We required them to discuss the readings and kind of drew out their their different points of view. We organized them and did simulations with them related to the, the topic area. And after the first day, the students were really perplexed. And after the second day, they went away and they caucused because they couldn't understand what we were doing. And they came back to us on the third day and said, we we've decided that you're approaching this in a you know with a different philosophy and we needed to have a name for it so we've decided that we will call what you're doing the discussion method of teaching so it was it was a fascinating fascinating experience in that uh, um, you know coming into a different environment and we we can't do what they do in their system but we could do something very different and the students appreciated the difference that is so interesting uh when when I was living in India, I was invited to come to a Tibetan refugee camp uh, to provide um, some modeling, uh, just to model North American approaches to pedagogy uh, for the, the teachers. There were 50 or 60 students in the class, and of course they were all in rows and they were ranked. Um, and it, I was attempting to demonstrate how you could encourage dialogue between students uh, to get them to begin to think and to discuss ideas and to go deeper into the learning. And um, it was an utter failure. (laughs) 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 Um, I I, I recall just these these blank stares, um, you know, 120 eyes looking straight at me. Just as you to use your term, absolutely perplexed with this 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 woman and this this teaching approach. Um, 
But again, uh, the debrief afterwards with the teachers was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And I learned a lot about the system um, and the competitive nature of the educational system. Um, And and very few students are successful and are given the opportunity to move forward in their learning through, you know, advanced learning in any any manner. Um, And I I guess I just reflect on... um, the benefits of having a, a democratic society that allows that at the heart of it really is a public education system that allows everybody mm-hmm. to thrive and learn. Is it is it a case then? Do you think that we need to teach students how to learn? Hmm. In some cases, I, I think that's what we're doing mm-hmm. all the time. If we're doing our jobs well, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in in every class, whatever the title of the class is, and whatever the content area is that's covered, I think we're also teaching students how to learn. Um, and there there are times in every program when you want to be more overt and more deliberate about that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, I was involved when I was working in Gold Trail. Uh, I was the superintendent at the time, but we were working with a program called AVID, which was designed. Uh, it is an American um, approach, but it was designed to deliberately teach uh, to students the skills that are required in order to be a successful student, even where you sit in a class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, the uh, we were targeting students who were likely going to be the first to ever graduate from school and attend a post-secondary institution. So we were preparing them for that. Um, but it was very deliberately teaching them how to be students. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it was very successful. And it wasn't until we began to deliberately teach that that we saw the um, completion rate or the graduation for our Aboriginal students uh, that we were targeting uh, actually shift. So I think it's extremely important. Some of the most interesting classes I've taught have been um, interdisciplinary classes that draw students from wide backgrounds and different years. Um, so when, when confronting a class like that for uh, a first meeting, um, I, I try never to make um, assumptions about uh, what their preparation is. Mm-hmm. So my background is history. Classes I teach tend to have a lot of independent research and essays and readings and seminar-type discussions and things like that. But I'll get students that are coming from engineering or business or wherever, and I, I can't presume they're familiar with that. So I have always tried to build in, um, first of all, uh, discussions somewhere where it works naturally about how to read an article, um, how to take notes, um, what is an essay-style exam like, how do you write one. Um, and I can do little bits of that in every course I teach. Um, but then I also um, um, always want to refer the students to the other resources that are out there because there are places they can go for, for greater depth than I can give them and more, more practice. Mm. That ability to think about your thinking and to know what the next steps are in order for you to progress your own learning seems to me that is what provides the agency for the learner. That's going to give them the ability to actually um, be as successful as they possibly can be. Um, I think when I reflect back on when I taught abroad in India and and, uh, some of the students that first came to me uh, were quite passive because mm-hmm. they wanted to be told what to learn, and then it was really just about memorizing. So the students that were the most successful, the ones that could regurgitate or yeah. or could feed back to you the very information that you had provided them. So um, to an answer to your question, I think metacognition or the ability to think about your thinking um, is paramount to being a successful learner.
let's talk about your teaching again. Let's see. Was there any? Um, you've given an example of, of of a really unique thing when you went to that that Chinese class and and sort of turned things backwards or turned things upside down in, in your approach. Any other sort of unique or um, uh, outside the box lessons that you found were really worked well or didn't work well? Hmm. I can think of uh, one. Um, I was both, I was a teaching principal, and this was in Smithers, British Columbia, and I was teaching um, and leading a school called Lake Kathleen Elementary School, which was adjacent to Wet'suwet'en Territory. Uh, I guess it was actually on traditional uh, Wet'suwet'en Territory, but adjacent to a community called Morristown. And uh, many of those students came to our school, and I began to develop a relationship with uh, some of the the um, elders in the community and some some key leaders, and what came of that was this idea that um, that we needed to be spending a lot more time in the community. Um, that this notion that we had to that the students um, and the families needed to come to us um, was was really challenged. Um, so. My, myself and, uh, and a few other educators actually went into the community and began what we called a family literacy program and began to work with families and, and youth uh, after school to develop programming that um, brought us together and deepened the learning experience by making those homeschool connections. And that one gesture uh, went so far in terms of uh, developing um a respectful and collaborative relationship. Um, and I, I, I recall that for me, that was really the first time I had sort of understood that learning needs to occur not just within the four walls of the school, but learning needs to occur uh, in community and we need to build those strong partnerships. Um, yeah, that, that was one of those sort of aha moments. And mm. for many, I'm sure that they look now and say, think that was very... It's very sort of a straightforward approach, but at the time, believe it or not, that was actually considered to be innovative, um, sadly. But um, yeah, a powerful moment for me and, and um, built just very strong relationships that I actually have still today. Interesting. Um, I tend to find that teaching is kind of like um, cooking and it, in one particular way. So my family occasionally get upset with me because my practice is that I don't ever make anything the same way twice. So they'll sometimes say, you know, that was really good. Can't you kind of make that just exactly the way you did last time? And to me, I've never kind of been inspired by that. I think teaching is a creative activity, and I can't teach a course um, uh, without wanting to redevelop it and, and mm -hmm. rethink it. So that's led me to do a variety of things over the years, uh, some of which were successful and some of which weren't. Um, I think the biggest successes were always when I challenged the students um, to do things that, um, you know, I, I didn't think were occurring in other courses. I wasn't sure whether they'd be up to them. Uh, but in every case, um, my experience has been that students have been willing and able to take on uh, more responsibility, more autonomy, more independent work um, than uh, was traditionally being offered to them. So two of the ways that, um, um, that I've done that are, uh, first of all, I remember teaching an undergraduate course 
where I required the students to do research uh, um, in uh, partnership agreements with community organizations. So they had to go out and identify uh, something, some organization outside the university. They had to work out an agreement with them, and they had to go through a university ethics approval procedure for their um, project for the course. Um, as far as I knew, they'd never been asked to do that before at that level. Uh, but they all did it wonderfully, and no one kind of objected that this is an unfair thing you're asking of us. And of course, what they got from it was not just the the project, but the process of working with a community-based organization. Um, I, where I've had um, student um, uh, populations in courses that uh, that come with more connections, um, then uh, again, they've always risen to the challenge. Um, and one of the great pleasures late in my teaching career has been teaching in a public administration program where so kind of like a, you know a business admin program this is for public sector but the people in the class um, already have jobs in the public sector some of them have 5 10 20 years experience so the things we're studying in the class are things they have been doing every day um, so to be able to take advantage of that and build the whole class around their um, sharing with each other their own experiences and reflecting on those that was really exciting in terms of uh, you know feedback from students and kind of adapting as you go I never had the experience to teach in a classroom that was equipped for um, instant electronic feedback right. and I think there's probably really interesting things that you could could do with that uh, but one thing that I, I did do that I'm really glad I came to is after hearing um, uh, colleagues talk about using journaling in courses um, I went into that in a big way for some courses and you know gave the students some time in class, gave them suggested topics to write about outside class, but to turn in their journals. And so some of the content was at least loosely related to the classes we were doing, and it gave me a really good mm. opportunity to understand how they were thinking, how they were internalizing things that they heard in class, and how they were applying that to things in their own lives. That mm. was a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience. And of course, it was practice writing, and part of the feedback was about writing and all of that. So I, I was really glad that I did that. Mm. When I'm in classrooms now and I observe uh, the quality of the teaching, I'm, I'm really um, overwhelmed. I'm not sure I could go back. Mm. Uh, and and I, I, the skills that the teachers have now are far superior to the skills I think I came into the profession with. Mm -hmm. um, the students that, that we hire from TRU, uh, the young professionals, are 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 extraordinary. I mean, they have a, a level of understanding that took me 10 years to sort of glean in my profession. So I think we just understand the science of teaching and learning much better. Um, and I'm, I'm constantly um, amazed and impressed with the quality of teaching in our, our schools. Oh, I, I have learned so much from younger and newer yes. teachers. Um, and um, um, I guess I don't want to say I learned nothing from older teachers, but but I learned so much from people who were were new and younger and trying new things. Um, and uh, uh, something I didn't expect is um, uh, my department had a very um, uh, systematic approach 
to evaluation of instructors, which required both student and peer evaluation of every instructor in every level of course. Um, so that required that we have uh, visits to each other's classrooms, that one or two of us would um, observe um, at least one session uh, that an instructor was uh, was um, delivering. So I was there to evaluate the instructor, but in the process of doing that, I was invited into their classroom and observed everything that they did. Mm. So I was learning from it mm. as well. Mm. That that was amazing. And I, and that, that experience of being invited into someone else's classroom is a, is really special. Um, uh, you know, we don't do nearly as much of that, maybe even now, as, as we should. Um, uh, we, we tend to be a little bit proprietary about our classrooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, the depersonalization sort of, of classrooms, opening the doors uh, to our colleagues is probably the most important thing we can do, I think, uh, to... Um, to to, to elicit feedback around our, our, our practice. Um, I know in SD73 right now we're, we have a, a protocol called instructional rounds and um, mm. that does allow um, with sort of very strict protocols um, teams to go into a school to observe with, with um, a very focused objective um, and then to provide the school with feedback. And that's been a very successful approach. But uh, I concur. I think we need to do more of it. And um, our profession has been fairly, um, it's, it can be a very isolating profession if you, if you don't reach out. And perhaps too, too often we are, we are working uh, independently as opposed to collaboratively. And you're reminding me that some of my most interesting teaching experiences were team teaching yes. courses, yeah. and especially the type of team teaching where, uh, if it's two instructors, that both of us were present all the time for every course. So we weren't alternating. We were actually doing it jointly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've had those experiences too, and um, my greatest joy has been when I've been teaching with others. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, that's that's a great way to sum it up. I'd like to thank you both for coming and participating in this podcast and uh, have a great day. Thank you. Well, thanks very much. This was fun. Thanks. Thanks. As we think of senior leaders in educational organizations, we need to remember that they are first and foremost educators. In this episode, we've heard about the learning road traveled by two teachers, both in the humanities one a middle school teacher, and one a history professor. The road has taken them from overseas teaching to the C-suite of their organizations. Their work days take them away from the classroom, but it hasn't changed who they are as educators and what they believe in about learning. Thanks to President Brett Fairbairn of Thompson Rivers University and Superintendent Allison Cedo of School District Number 73 at Kamloops Thompson. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not of the university. The music in this episode was the Fantasia on the Dargazon by Gustav Holst and performed by the Northern College of Music Wind Orchestra. This has been Adventures in Teaching. Brought to you by CELT, the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at Thompson Rivers University.